G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be back with you talking about creativity again. Absolutely. Back for another round of creativity. We're, we're here to do our a second episode of creativity, which we've called Increasing Our Creativity. And Dad, we had a slight issue with the name in terms of we, we've had to have a bit of a, a last minute name change. And, and that is because we had the idea of calling this episode Cultivating Creativity. But I've beaten you to it, Dad. I've actually done a podcast episode last year myself called Cultivating Creativity. So we thought we'd better change her up and we've called today's episode Increasing Our Creativity. I thought it was original. I was happy with that Cultivating (laughs) Creativity, so I'm feeling a bit miffed. I thought it was a slightly better title. We'll have to settle for at least second best. Oh, certainly. So, you know, I'm, I'm sitting pretty over here. I've got them both. But I'll tell you what, one thing I am absolutely looking forward to getting into uh, this content with you today. It's, it's a, going to be a little bit of a different podcast from other ones that we've done before in the sense that today's content comes from a book that, Dad, actually I've read and you haven't even read yourself. So it's uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, maybe having a, a slightly different role on the podcast today. Yes, I'll be very much interested to hear about what you bring up with that because a lot of what we talked about last week was focusing on things from the book on creativity by... Mihal Csikszentmihalyi, who talked about flow as well that we covered in an earlier episode again. So, yes, very interested to follow your lead today, Rowan. Well, I must admit, Dad, this book, it was called The Creative Curve by Alan Gannett. It's an absolutely brilliant book, and we'll go through some of the stuff in it today. That was actually the first place that I really came across Csikszentmihalyi. He was talking, he was actually interviewed for this book, and and I don't know if he directly collaborated on it, but through his interviews, obviously that was a a large section of the book, was built upon the work of Csikszentmihalyi. And I think it's just a a fascinating exploration into some of this stuff, Dad, because as we spoke about a little bit at the start of last episode, this is something that you and I, I think, have, have both been interested in, potentially from slightly different angles, though. Yes, and certainly if an author is drawing on Chick Set Me High, that's doing one of the things which is such a worthwhile thing to do with creativity, drawing on a knowledge base, drawing on domain knowledge that might be referred to as. So what a great place to go to for some domain knowledge about creativity than interviewing Chick Set Me High. Well, as you mentioned that domain knowledge, obviously we spoke about this a little bit on last week's podcast, and if you haven't heard last week's podcast, it might be worth going and just listening to it first before we get into too much today, because there's a lot there that is going to be a good, I suppose, bit of background landscape for some of the stuff that we're going to get into today. There's so many benefits to creativity, but what we're going to be talking about today is is some of the process to induce more. And there's certainly many wonderful examples of creativity or people producing something wonderfully creative that I'm sure many people could relate to that I know that you've prepared for today. Well, Dad, it's one of the things that I find so interesting about this topic is, you know, we brought it up last week, but there seems to be such a mythology around the idea of creativity. You know, the classic one is is Isaac Newton was sitting under an apple tree one day, all of a sudden this apple falls out, hits him on the head, and suddenly he thinks of gravity, just like that. And I think that's actually, you know, been disproven, that story in many ways. But yet this myth exists. And, you know, for example, you know, Chris Martin apparently wrote the song Yellow from Coldplay. He wrote the song Yellow apparently almost in one go. I think Deep Purple is said to write Smoke in the Water in about 10 minutes. I think Paul McCartney from The Beatles, again, brought this up last week, the song Yesterday apparently came to him in a dream. 
And he kind of woke up and had a piano by his bed and, and kind of just smashed it out. There you go. There's one of the greatest songs of all time. But there's this myth around people who are creative that they pull it out of absolutely thin air. And I think one of the things that you realise when you look into some of this sort of stuff is that actually there's a little bit more to it. And we touched on that a little bit last week when we looked at the domain, the person in the field. Once we start to break this stuff down, there are things that we can do to help us have a little bit more creativity in a sense. Yes, if someone comes out with this wonderful aha experience and they've suddenly invented something or come up with a new song or whatever, how much hard work will have preceded that? For example, with Paul McCartney, how much practice at songwriting would he have done with John Lennon and others in the band as well? How much learning of the musical instruments, how much of listening to other kinds of music maybe that we mightn't even heard that he would be exposed to. There's so much background that goes into a so-called creative genius pulling something out of themselves at the time. There's a whole lot of hard work that's gone beforehand. Well, the Beatles are actually such a good example because, you know, I certainly didn't know this until I really started looking into them, being a Beatles fan for a while, but it wasn't really until I was like, you know, what's the whole story here? They spent years playing together in Hamburg in Germany. And apparently the the kind of nightclub that they were at, they would get eight-hour sets. So they'd be literally, you know, five to seven days a week, eight hours a day, just practicing together, playing together. And, And you listen to the Beatles speak about that experience, and it was clearly such a formative part of their experience. Actually, getting back to something that we've enjoyed lately is watching some of the Get Back documentary by Peter Jackson. It's just quite remarkable to see the Beatles there. They've only got four songs for a new album. They're really struggling. And you can see how even these very creative people might struggle. And that's part of the nature of creativity to experience that. But then after a while, you see Paul McCartney start to play a kind of riff and gradually that evolves into Get Back. Now, it's wondrous to see that sudden emergence of a famous kind of riff. But by the same token, then you see afterwards how they have to labour to some extent over the lyrics and mull them over in different ways, but also all the practice that they're doing, the sitting around that they're doing, the trying to come up with things and dealing with other challenges that they face or conflicts within the band at times as well. There's a hell of a lot of perspiration that's going on behind that inspiration that we eventually hear. Well, I'm super excited to get into some of this stuff with you today, Dad. And before we get into the nuts and bolts of all this, I suppose where could people start with some of this sort of stuff? If you were to suggest to people how they could cultivate a little bit more creativity, where are some areas that they could look to begin? Okay, well, I think one of the first things is cultivating curiosity. Just being open helps. Being open-minded makes a difference. We're more likely to come up with novel ideas if we're looking outward, if you like, and we're receptive to some different kind of thoughts coming in. And with those thoughts that coming in, not being too self-critical, being prepared to take risks about looking at things in different ways. So that partly means being prepared to be unconventional. Part of it is also recognising our own intrinsic motivation for following through in some kind of creative pursuit because it does involve the perspiration. So if we're going to follow through and do the work, both, for example, developing, say, the musical ability or practising our writing skills or practising ways of solving problems in a particular area of work, then 
To do all that hard work element of it and keep on going and persisting, we want to find our own internal motivation. So if we're following through pursuits where we've described before that expression, if you're following your bliss, things that you like doing and you're good at, that's going to help us be creative. But however much talent that we have, one of the main things is being prepared to work hard. A lot of enacting creativity is persistence, being prepared to make mistakes, having to correct things, go over it, checking with other people if it works, checking your solutions if they work, and being prepared to revise it in different ways. There's a lot of ongoing work with creativity. Well, certainly there is, and I dare say he's going to come up a couple of times today in this episode because I just think he's such a rock star in terms of creativity. But Leonardo da Vinci had that great quote, which I think speaks to that idea that you're talking about, you know, in terms of, you know, you need some perspiration. But he said, obstacles cannot crush me. Every obstacle yields to stern resolve. He who is fixed to a star does not change his mind. And so to me, it seems that like, the notion of that is if you have this kind of overarching purpose for doing something, a, a sort of reason for being in a creative sense, it's really going to help you with that level of persistence that you need to follow something through fully. Yes, and look, I will mention it's actually a, a plug for you, but it does come to my mind. When you mentioned about Da Vinci, I thought that you had a wonderful episode on Da Vinci in your podcast about individuation. It was just a remarkable kind of historical story about his exploits and his nature. That's a wonderful example of creativity. So, yeah, you might have a link to that for this podcast page. I, I found that fascinating. <laughs> oh, well, thanks, Dad. That's, uh, I'll have to sort you out afterwards for that one. But uh, thanks for the plug there. I will put the podcast page for that one up on today's episode page because, look, if nothing else, it's a fascinating story in so many ways. And particularly when we look at some of this sort of stuff like creativity and, you know, Da Vinci was such an innovator in so many ways. You look at the Mona Lisa and the way that that just broke so much new ground for art. But one of the things that Da Vinci realised, and we touched on it last week in terms of, you know, having this idea of novelty. With something creative, we want to have a bit of novelty, but it can't be all novelty. And, and last week we spoke about this idea of, you know, needing some adaptability. There's novelty and adaptability in creativity. But Alan Gannett actually describes it, and I really think about it in these terms, is you've got to have novelty, but you've also got to have familiarity. So in, in terms of whether something's going to be well-received or not as being creative, it just can't be too much out there in terms of having too much novelty. And you know, like one of the, the areas that I think that this really shows up is, for example, in fashion. If you want something that's creative, you, know, you might be debuting the most innovative fashion piece at next season's Milan catwalk. But at the same time, if you go back to, say, like for example, I don't know, 1955 and debut the exact same piece in the exact same set of circumstances, but you know, there's a 65-year gap, people aren't going to identify with that novelty because it's, it's too novel, it's too much out there. There's, there's not enough that's familiar for people to recognise that it's an innovation of something that they're already aware of, if that makes sense. Yes, that's fascinating in a way to me because I think that has parallels with scientific creativity sometimes getting ahead of itself. And I'm often reminded what Martin Seligman, the founder of Positive Psychology, said about this when he was talking about scientific advancement. He said that when people are writing up new research or they're writing up scientific papers, 
it's often worth aiming to get things about one step ahead of where the field is. But he suggested that most scientific papers that are written up are only about half a step ahead of the field, maybe not so original as they could be to be most fascinating or interesting. But he said also that sometimes it's worth writing up something which is one and a half steps ahead of the field just for your own self-respect. And I think that reflects that he had that characteristic of being something of a maverick, but he had the most wonderful, conventional, research-based statistical knowledge. He'd been a president of the American Psychological Association. He had these really mainstream credentials that he'd worked at for such a long time, which in the end even enabled him in the book Flourish to express some of his ideas, which I would say had a bit more of a spiritual, intuitive, almost mystical edge, and still very much have that mainstream credibility. Well, it's such an interesting example, Dad, and I think, as you say, unless he'd developed himself in the field of psychology, he wouldn't have necessarily been able to innovate in as many ways as he was, whilst bringing everyone along for the ride too. So... I think it's worth now we, are, we, we get into some of this sort of stuff in terms of the process. And Dad, I'll, I'll just go through it briefly at first and then we might elaborate on it a little bit because it's basically four steps to the process. And the four steps are consumption, imitation, engaging with creative communities and coming up with iterations. So we might go into a, a little bit of each of these. But So if we look at the first step in the process now, consumption. Consumption is almost like the apprentice stage. That's the stage where you're almost first learning about the domain. You're recognising examples within that field. You're learning a little bit about what's come before you. You're, I suppose if we, we bring it back to last week, what we spoke about there, it's really getting your head around the domain in that sort of sense. In terms of, yeah, that, that first stage, consuming as much as we can and really just engaging with whatever subject matter it is that we want to get into. Okay, so that sounds like the preparation stage we talked about last week where the more knowledge you gain in a certain field, including learning from others, that puts you in a better position to be creative. Absolutely, it does. And so, Dad, the next step is the imitation stage. And so that stage that we really hone what we've learned in the consumption phase. So we've got a bit of a sense of, you know, what's in the domain, but this is where we really come into it in terms of a practice. And, you know, we spoke about the idea that, you know, the Beatles, they'd been together for a few years, one of the things that really brought them together as a group was going over to Hamburg and having that stage in their career where they practised for eight hours a day and, and really came together as a group. It seems to me that would have been a big part of the imitation stage of developing our creativity. Okay, so that idea of imitation, it sounds like it really emphasises the exposure to other creative people. And so the next stage you mentioned, creative communities, that gets across that idea as well. Well, certainly, and, and you know, I like that point there in terms of like picking up on what other creatives have done and, you know, again, like I think of this idea of Leonardo da Vinci. We think of him as, as almost this character in isolation who kind of popped up out of nowhere and it was him and Michelangelo almost having this kind of creative tussle at the time. But if you actually look at, you know, how da Vinci was educated... You know, I think he came from, a, came from a wealthy background, wasn't able to be educated in the same way as his brothers and sisters, being an illegitimate child. But what he was able to do through his, his contacts was get an apprenticeship in a, in a workshop. Basically, oh, his name slipped me now, it started with them. But basically, Da Vinci had a master. And within his master's workshop, obviously, there was, you know, little Da Vinci working over here. There was a whole range of other kind of painters and sculptors and artists from that time. 
who, as you say, like they would have been almost in that imitation phase, learning their craft. But at the same time, there's a whole range of them there. They're able to discuss certain things. They're able to say, oh, actually, no, I, I disagree with you for this reason. They're able to almost kind of egg each other on in a way and, and propel them towards this, you know, this creative pursuit that they're all going at together just through virtue of doing it at the same time. Yeah, something that Csikszentmihalyi described as hot spots, like in various areas of science. So often you get a particular university department where people will travel overseas to go to that department because they're the specialists in that particular area. Absolutely. And, and, you know, again, if we look at this idea of the Beatles in terms of like what a creative community that would have been. You've got Paul McCartney, John Lennon, you know, George Harrison, he's obviously talked about one of the, the most underrated Beatles. But I think, you know, you told me last week, Dad, it was uh, Frank Sinatra said that something was his favourite Lennon McCartney song, but it wasn't even Lennon McCartney who wrote something, it was George Harrison. Yeah, so it's amazing that way, isn't it, that sometimes there's that notion of going to a hot spot where there are already other people with these exceptional talents. But what many creative people emphasise is also there are elements of luck. So you do wonder whether there were some elements of luck as well in some people with some exceptional potential. But whether that be the case or not, it's certainly part of this communal activity and egging each other on, encouraging each other, learning from each other, inspiring each other, which is part of, well, that creative communities. And I think we see it, you know, throughout history in terms of, like, there seems to be some communities who, who really nailed that idea of the creative community. Like, we talk about Florence in the, you know, early 1500s sort of thing. Like, as much of a creative community as there's ever been in history. But, you know, even now you think of things like Silicon Valley, like I know Miami in recent times has become huge for things like NFTs and like it seems that just naturally some of these places do develop in terms of I suppose being a, a bit of a magnet for other people who, who have similar creative interests. Yes, like um, classical Greece where so much Stoic philosophy came from, creative in that philosophy which still underpins a lot of modern psychology. Absolutely. And, and Dad, it's, it's one of the things that I find so fascinating about this process because it seems to me, you know, the first couple of phases, the consumption and imitation phase, like obviously imitation, we're imitating someone else, but it's, there's an element to which it's kind of individual in a way in terms of like, you know, you can go off and kind of, you know, basically do that on YouTube by yourself. But this idea of the creative community, it really is involving other people. Like we spoke about this a little bit last week in terms of the, the community idea of creativity in a way, but... But Alan Gannett actually talks about, like for example, a number of roles in the creative community that, you know, it seems to me if we look back at some of these communities that have developed, like ancient Greece, like Florence, Silicon Valley, naturally some of the more creative people in those communities would probably have people to fulfil these roles in their lives. And those roles are, so for example, we've got the master teacher. So the master teacher is the one that can teach you the existing patterns and formulas within your craft or industry. They ensure that you create things that are familiar and that you hone your craft with deliberate practice. So, you know, the mentor idea in terms of, you know, Da Vinci very much would have had his, uh, his master teacher. Next is the conflicting collaborator. So someone whose personality traits compensate your flaws. This is someone who is essentially seeing things in a different way to us and can point out in a constructive way when we're being too abstract or off the mark. 
So that sounds like that could be part of that evaluation stage as well, being exposed to other people with different ideas who are prepared to be critical at that stage. Hopefully not too critical at the start, like hopefully also you've got encouraging mentors and peers, but you can see how, yes, having a conflicting collaborator will help not get too far ahead of yourself with half-thought-through ideas. And I think it also gets across the idea that people challenging your ideas is not a bad thing. I think we've we've gone in such a direction that way in in so many ways, Dad, in terms of, you know, people can get so offended when their ideas are challenged. But what this suggests is that there's a certain robustness that comes out of having your ideas challenged. It it helps to strengthen them in a way. If there are people there who are going, "Ah, actually, I don't know if you've thought about this in this way. Yes, that sounds like the benefit of having a devil's advocate in a group situation trying to come up with creative team ideas where there's a risk of getting into groupthink. One way of getting around groupthink where people are too easily going off in some new direction is having someone who's assigned the role of being a devil's advocate. So, yes, being able to test the ideas, being open to that. And, you know, watching this Get Back Beatles documentary, Dad, it seems that the... In some ways, it seems John and Paul had a bit of a a conflicting collaborator relationship with each other in some ways. I think, I can't remember the song that they were referring to, but I know that John referred to one of Paul's songs as, you know, a bit of granny music. And so, uh, obviously, he didn't just completely accept everything that he was doing. Yes, Maxwell's silver hammer, I think. I suspect that Paul would have wanted to use Maxwell's silver's hammer on John's head at that point, but (laughs) yes. Well, Dad, the next, uh, the next member of the creative community that Alan Gannett talks about is the modern muse. And that's someone who stimulates your creativity and whose relationship helps to push you to become more creative. They may stimulate ideas through conversation or know how to put you in a mood that allows you to be able to be more creative. These people inspire you to motivate and persevere when you are losing sight of your goal. So that seems to me there's a bit of a cheerleader. You need a bit of a cheerleader on your side sometimes. You know, obviously you need your conflicting collaborator, but you also need to potentially, after that conversation, turn to someone who's just going to be, you know, unconditionally on your side and go, oh, goodness me, they've just ripped shreds off me and I sort of understand it, but, you know, I just need to be told I'm a good person for a little while. I really like that term muse. We often think of it as a somewhat archaic term in a way because Plato referred to the muses as helping encourage a certain kind of divine madness. So Plato described creativity as one of four different types of divine madness along with religious rites and prophecy and love there's creativity saying this is a key kind of thing that can add to life and one of the things I loved about Plato's expression divine madness is it was giving license for a kind of unconventional thinking and you can imagine how anyone who's a muse might inspire people to come up with something novel and original and a bit unconventional and a muse might appear in many different forms well certainly dad and you know as you say, like the idea of a muse is something in some ways a little bit unrelatable. But, you know, for example, having that friend that has just that, you know, bundles of energy at all times and you're able to just, you know, almost have a bit of fun, a bit of banter and just sort of be your relaxed self around, I think that's potentially something that we can relate to. So you know, I like that idea of drawing them together in that way. But if we look at the, the last of our roles in, in the creative community, it's a prominent promoter. So someone who already has established credibility and is prepared to lend some to you. 
This benefits both you and them as they get fresh ideas and future reciprocal favours and you get to gain some credibility through association. Yes, it's interesting to hear of that example. I'm reminded of Michael Gadinsky, the wonderful Australian promoter who sadly recently died but obviously had so much impact on so many international wonderful musicians like Ed Sheeran clearly loved Michael Gadinsky and others attributed so much of their success to his encouragement certainly many Australian acts did and I'm even reminded of the Foo Fighters saw them in a concert in Geelong on Friday talk about creativity that was wonderful but they highlighted Michael Gadinsky they had a picture of him on the drum kit to acknowledge how much he'd facilitated their international acknowledgement well certainly in Australia where they'd toured about 13 times so Yes, you can see how that would make so much of a difference. And I imagine in the Renaissance, you mentioned people like da Vinci, they would have had their patrons who paid for certain works to be done. And if it wasn't for the patrons, then it wouldn't have been realistic for people to work you know, for ages on these huge paintings or to work with gold or statues or whatever. So you can see how the notion of resources are going to come into it and having a prominent promoter, what a difference that would make. Well, definitely, and it's an interesting thing, Dad, because obviously, you know, Alan Gunner, he talks about these as as roles and people within your creative community, and I completely understand that and and relate to it in some ways, but, you know, what strikes me about this is that, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be the case that you'd need, for example, four distinct people filling four distinct roles in this situation. Like, it seems to me if we we almost break it down, like, obviously, you know, we we want a mentor, we want someone for guidance, you know, we want someone to challenge us in terms of, you know, the conflicting collaborator. Like, we want to be guided, we want to be challenged, we want someone around us who's just going to have that energy and it's just going to be able to put us in a frame of mind that, you know, keeps us stimulated, keeps us, you know, in good mood and, and just allows us to keep going. And then we want someone to, you know, obviously promote us, but like what strikes me about that prominent promoter idea is that, you know, it's someone with, it seems, a positive sum attitude. It's someone who's prepared to, you know, give a little bit to, you know, gain a little bit later on. They may not necessarily know you from a bar of soaps. They may not exactly know what they'll gain. But, like, I think we see this with podcasts massively. Like, for example, people who already have an existing audience who are happy to go on a smaller podcast and talk with that podcast host's audience about about whatever the uh, podcast host wants to. But at the same time, what they get is they get, you know, a stimulating conversation in a new direction that can help them think of new ideas. And, and they get to collaborate with someone who's potentially new in the field and, and who, you know, could go places sort of thing. So, like, it seems that there's this real kind of two-way street that comes with that prominent promoter idea. Yes, well, one of the things that comes across to me there is really what you need at heart is supports and cheerleaders. I'm thinking any difficult thing you need, that actually that comes up in therapy settings when people are looking to bring about difficult change. They might have certain kind of habits, dealing with addictions, dealing with some self-destructive habits. Often people need real supports and cheerleaders to do that because it's a difficult thing to do. So this is reminding me that being creative and following through with creative acts can be a very difficult thing to do, so you need some of these positive forces on your side. Certainly you do, and, and I think that's a, yeah, that's a, that's a great example, Dad. But, uh, but I suppose just to close things off now, the final step is iteration. So we're talking about different versions and updates here. So like Alan Gunner, he talks about, you know, again, like another sort of four-step process here. He talks about, you know, 
iterations involving conceptualization. You know, you come up with a whole range of ideas, almost like the brainstorming process. Then reduction, you know, getting rid of all the bad ideas that are just not going to work. Then curation, which is, you know, a bit of analysis on some of the ideas of going, okay, we've got a bit of a short list of what I want to do here. You know, what direction am I going to take? And you're getting a bit of, I suppose, tangible feedback. And you're able to fine-tune things a little bit. And then, of course, feedback is the last one. So, so obviously, yeah, chatting to other people about how it went. But, you know, for me, this idea of iterations, like if you think of musicians, like, you know, Dad, ACDC, great band, but they only have had one song. And like, you know, they, they did really well with it. And it was, you know, it was, it was very small kind of iterations on that one song. Whereas if you look at other bands, for example, you know, the Rolling Stones or even U2 or uh, even Coldplay, like these bands have, have almost been through a few different periods in their life. Like they've been able to kind of reinvent themselves in a way. They've been able to update themselves. They've been able to, to change things up and, and they recognise that something may have worked in one situation but people develop familiarity to it and you go, hey, I need to develop some novelty all over again. So it seems this iterations idea is almost looking at things and, and fine-tuning and refining things in order to be able to you know, keep up with the novelty and obviously the, the familiarity. You don't want to go too far out of it. But if we don't introduce new novelty every so often, well, then people are just going to build up that familiarity. And you know, it's like if you hear a song. You know, you hear it for the first time, it's like, oh, it's, it's pretty new and out there, don't mind that. And then you hear it five times in a row, you're like, this is banging, what an absolute tune. And then you hear it 55 times in a row, you're like, oh, I'm so over this. Like, the familiarity's just built up so much that you're just, you're not experiencing the same level of kind of stimulation and enjoyment from it. Yeah, so it certainly sounds like from what you're saying, creativity is this ongoing process. Like, there's not so much to be respected, if you like, about a one-hit wonder if we're looking at being really creative. They're people who keep on renewing themselves in different ways. And this reminds me of one of the characteristics of creative people. They tend to be very focused on the present and the future in their creative acts. They're not sitting back resting on their laurels. And they wouldn't be happy with a one-hit wonder kind of thing. They're forever looking to renew and change things. And not just because of the, if you like, kudos they're going to get from doing something wonderful. There's something about their creative efforts being worth doing for their own sake. That's when people are really firing and most energised in states of flow, satisfied with what they're doing. It seems there's this, yeah, focus on the present and the future. So creativity then Sounds like a mindset, like an ongoing process being open to renewal. Well, certainly, and I think it is, again, one that we can tap into as well. You know, we talk about things like, you know, the big C and the little C. Like, to me, in some ways, like, like obviously there are going to be people who are just inherent creative geniuses. They, they are going to, I suppose, identify with that big C. But at the same time, like, if we look at that iterations thing of, like, conceptualisation, reduction, curation and feedback, potentially there's just going to be some people who can kind of do that a little bit intuitively. They don't necessarily need to go through the entire process. They may have one idea and it's just on the money in terms of that novelty familiarity every time that they don't quite need to refine it as much. I'm sure, you know, if, if we were to look at just about everyone, there has been refinements that they've, you know, made over the course of many, many years. You know, again, I think of Leonardo da Vinci. The Mona Lisa was something that basically, you know, took a, a large part of the end of his life. And it was one of the, I think it was the last painting that he was working on uh, when he moved to France towards the end of his life. And, and so, you know, we see it as some kind of, you know, obviously isolated event, but, you know, something that he built up his entire life. Like if we look at these stages again, consumption, 
imitation, creative communities and iterations, like the Mona Lisa would have been an iteration for Da Vinci and there would have been so much that came before in terms of his education and his practice and his challenging himself and being challenged and you know competing with Michelangelo and all this sort of stuff. So I think it's just a, it's a fascinating way to look at all this sort of stuff, Dad, because you know, if we go back to that idea of this you know, mythology around creativity, it's like you know, Isaac Newton, yeah, like even if he was hit on the head by the apple at the time that he was, and maybe that did you know, prompt the thought that kind of drew out gravity and the theory of gravity... But like, come on, like how much went into it beforehand? And, and the other thing is like no one exists in a vacuum as well in terms of like we all build upon what's come before us. We're all affected by those around us. We're all affected by, by those who are, who are working in the same area. So what it just suggests to me as well is that it's not worth thinking about things as, you know, I'm going to be completely isolated with this and you know, I'm going to write a book and then I'm going to release it in two years and it's just going to be a huge hit off the bat. Maybe there's a little bit more refinement that comes into it that way. Yes, one of the main things I've got from what you've explained today and the different terms that you've used from the creative curve, what especially comes across to me is your emphasis on creative communities and this influence of other people. And one of the things that it leads me to think about and look to be sensitised to is recognising creativity in other people. We can encourage that. We can even notice it, even just comment on it. But support other people, our peers or family members in what they're doing. Be a cheerleader for someone doing something that way. So we don't always have to be putting in all the perspiration ourselves. But hey, it can make a difference just to acknowledge and respect that act of creativity and look to support it in our own way. Hey, maybe that can make a difference too. Certainly. And it's such a good point, Dad, because, you know, there's, there's going to be people out there who you know, maybe need that cheerleader, you know, maybe they need someone to, you know, really collaboratively challenge them in a certain way where you say, hold on, like, I, I, I really love the idea of this, but, you know, what comes to mind for me here is maybe something in this direction and, you know, you, you're just adding something in that way and I suppose, yeah, collaborating with them. Yeah, because one of the things I think it's been a broad theme, our podcast started with COVID basically and lockdowns. We've had a lot of restrictions over the last couple of years. So hopefully the theme of creativity, these last couple of podcasts, hopefully that gives encouragement to maybe have a little bit of an expansive view of things. Be prepared to do some things a little bit differently, some risk taking, change things up a little bit we've got to be in our bonnet or an interest in something to follow that through a bit and if we see other people doing that to encourage that this is a good time for maybe a little bit more of that expansive opportunity certainly and i would say the other thing about that is you know recognize that there's going to be some things that we maybe really enjoy but you know it's absolutely fine to be at the consumption and imitation stage for a little while we don't necessarily have to be at the stage where you know really ready to engage everyone around us in our latest creative pursuit you know, maybe it is something just the consumption stage of things and, and you're starting to let things incubate in a certain direction and, and, yeah, it's just engaging at that first level. I suppose one of the things that, yeah, it highlights to me is that, you know, creativity has a whole range of levels to it and it doesn't need to be that we're, you know, right at the, uh, you know, standing at the easel, for lack of a better term, to be, to be contributing towards our creative pursuits. Yes, and I remember this afternoon you were saying something about a quote from Steve Jobs. Well, Dad, that might yeah, be worth mentioning. I, yeah. I think it's a good way to finish because, um, you know, like we spoke about last week, like everyone has that zone of genius in terms of everyone has their own unique set of experiences that 
you know, they only bring to the world. It, there's no one else who's had the exact same set of experiences and has the same thoughts and shares the same ideas as you do. And I think this is a pertinent quote from Steve Jobs. He says, creativity is just connecting things. When you ask creative people how they did something, they feel a little guilty because they didn't really do it. They just saw something. It seemed obvious to them after a while. That's because they were able to connect experiences they've had and synthesize new things. And the reason they were able to do that is they've had more experiences or they've thought more about their experiences than other people. And so, Dad, yeah, like, uh, you know, talking about creativity and mental health just to finish, you know, there's going to be so many people who I think need a bit of a reframe. Like Dylan Alcott to me is just the, the genius of reframes in the way that he talks about the way that he loves his disability. Like to me, Dylan Alcott is someone who embodies that quote so much because you know, he admits himself that there were times where he didn't even realise the power in his difference. And I look at that quote and I say, hey, like, we've all got differences and, you know, surely, surely we can all leverage them. All it takes is, you know, a bit of, a bit of inspiration and a bit of hard work, Dad. Yes, I suppose partly when we think about creativity, it's partly celebrating individuality, isn't it, and celebrating difference. And We've said before, but one way people can explore their own creativity further is looking at their character strengths. If people have not done the character strengths questionnaire, that might be something really useful to do and see how creativity tends to come up as one of your strengths relative to others. We've all got it, but if it comes up particularly high relative to others, hey, it might be worth really drawing on that. It might come more accessibly to you. But even if it's a more moderate or lower level, in terms of your own character strengths, yes, acknowledging and appreciating the good things about creativity adds further balance to our lives, helps us live our lives more fully. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. It's, um, it's been nice to indulge me in this second creativity episode today. Look, I must admit, I read that book last year and I think back to it so regularly because, you know, you look at that process and, you know, thank you again for the, uh, the plug. I will put that, uh, that podcast episode but, you know, I just so much enjoyed getting into this topic because, like I said, like you look at some of the examples of famous people throughout history and when you break it down, it becomes much more accessible, I think, what, uh, what they've gone through. Well, Rowan, thanks for reading that book and bringing it to us because it certainly added a few other nuances to my understanding. Enjoyed it.